Today is the first Sunday of Advent, and the word Advent means arrival. And so if you're new to church, that's what's up with that term. It means that uh, we look back with this real intention about the fact that God became a man and that he came. And, and then we cascade our thoughts forward to the truth that Christ the King who came will come again. We live in this in-between space uh, between, the, between those two Advents. And over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, four, uh, four themes. Our need and God's promise and God's plan and God's announcement. And this morning, we're going to focus on the need. But uh, the reason why we start uh, with the need and the reason why Advent starts th- has started this way for centuries, beginning in darkness, is because in doing so, you can really revel in the majesty of the light. And it, we get that in a way that we don't get if we just skip past the darkness and flick on the lights. Our text for today is Matthew chapter 25, starting in 1 through to 13. The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were foolish and five were wise. And for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And the bridegroom was delayed. And they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. And then all those virgins who had trimmed their lamps did so and the foolish said to the wise give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out but the wise answered saying since there will not be enough for us and you rather go into the dealers and buy for yourselves and while they were going to buy the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him into the marriage feast and the door was shut and afterwards the other virgins came also saying lord lord open to us but he answered Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is God's word. Now how does this text get us in a Christmassy mood? How are we going to get there? I mean, wouldn't it be better if we just went with the home sense liturgy? Put away the jack-o'-lanterns and the cobwebs on November 1st and flick on the lights. There, done. Isn't that a better way? It isn't actually a better way. Um, Because if on November 1st, we just sort of pop the clutch and spin the tires on mandated cheer and inexplicable commercialism and just flick the lights on and start dancing and singing for no explicable reason, we, we don't really get to appreciate the light. This is a text all about darkness, and I chose it intentionally because for centuries the church has used texts like this that begin in darkness and take us to light so that we can really revel in it. If you want to dial into Tolkien and you're like, I've never really read it, I watched the movies, but I want to read it, you don't, you don't dial in at book six. If you're like, well, you know, I'm really interested in this, you know, I'm really late to the Harry, Bo- Harry Potter train, but uh, let's just start at book three and just chop or chop some time. You can't, anyone who is like really into that stuff, who really appreciates, appreciates the depth and the building and the conflict and the nuance, they're going to, they're going to be gatekeepers. They're like, whoa, no, I'm sorry. You don't start at Jedi. Thank you very much. There's an order for all of this. And it's episodes four, five, six, one, two, three, seven, eight, nine. That's the orthodoxy. 
You do it another way. I'm sorry, you got it wrong. I'll pray for your soul. If you jumped into the Jays uh, bandwagon in 2015, when Jose Batista hit into the second deck and flipped the bat, that bat flip didn't mean nearly as much to you as it did for everybody who was suffering through the darkness the decade that preceded the 2015 season. You, don't, you don't, just don't understand the, the, and relish the significance of what it all means. Jump into Pride and Prejudice in the last chapter and you're like, oh, they seem to be an amicable couple. <laughs> well, a lot went on. And you see, this is why Advent for the church, it starts in darkness. Our Anglican friends really get this really well and like beautiful, constant imagery. I mean, it is, if you're an Anglican, it is dark for a long time before you light those, before you light those candles on Christmas Eve because they want us to sit in the gravity of what it means for God to become man, for God, the light to come into our darkness. So as we consider all of this, I, my goal is that there would be this increasing anticipation as we move towards Christmas, the significance of Christ, the depth and beauty of him. But we've got to start in the darkness. So we're going to look at two things this morning. There's many that we could sort of explore, but the two things I want us to explore this morning are firstly that God knows everybody tires in the darkness. Everybody gets weary in the darkness. We're human. And we're frail, and everybody gets tired in the darkness. And the second thing I want us to consider this morning from this teaching from Jesus is that not only does God know we tire in the darkness, but God's grace provides fuel for us in the darkness. So I'll explore this parable. Uh, Dr. Samuel Lamerson is the New Testament prof at Knox, where I went to seminary. And what he said about parables was, there's a few main characters and there's a few main movements, and you don't want to push the details too too crazily because they're stories. And they're stories that are being told to sort of jog your attention in a few really gripping ways. So we don't want to get lost in the weeds. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time exegeting line by line what this means. Let's start with this God who knows we're going to get tired in the darkness. You have these bridesmaids. It's a bridal party. And uh, they're called virgins intentionally because that language used all throughout the Old Testament as a metaphor for faithfulness and being chaste to God and and saving yourself for God and worshiping only God. So you get this, this, this metaphor of virginity. So this bridal party, we have to see ourselves as them. Christ is the bridegroom coming for his bride, and so all of us have to slide into this image of the bridal party. The bride is not mentioned in this parable. Instead, we're just given this multiplicity of bridesmaids who are are excitedly awaiting the the party to begin. And you can imagine this is a a super big deal um, in, in a culture where at night you can't see your hand in front of your face. So this imagery in the ancient world, I mean, darkness was dark and dangerous, and scary on many levels. A world without electricity, we can't even fathom it. On the darkest days for us, there's still a glow from the city illuminating the sky. Unless you've been out in the middle of a prairie province in a, on, a, you know, on, a, on an overcast uh, night where there's no light coming from anywhere where that's, or another, in another country far away from cities, you can't really appreciate that depth of this darkness. That's the, that's the poetic imagery that we're sort of given here. And... In this darkness, 
the party gets delayed. I don't know if you've ever been waiting for a friend and you're about to go do something really exciting and they text you and they're like, I'm on my way. And then you get another text, be there in 20 minutes. Well, you know right away, it's not gonna be 20 minutes. Because 20 minutes, like 20 minutes in the real world exists, but 20 minutes on texts is not a real thing. It's never 20 minutes. And so when you get that text 20 minutes, your excitement starts to wane. I don't know if you've ever, in, in fact, your excitement waiting for somebody can go from excitement to annoyance to agitation to anger. The children of Israel waiting for God all throughout that. I mean, that's the story of the Old Testament. They're waiting for deliverance and they're wondering where God is and their anticipation wanes and goes into all sorts of things. In this text, it wanes and it goes into the fact that they're sleeping. They're tired and weary and they're asleep. I, I officiated a wedding one time where the ceremony started 45 45 minutes late. I don't know about you, but it's a long time to wait. And they were like, hey, you've got to go out and make the announcement. There's a mix-up with the dress. There's a big, long story. I felt like I was in a rom-com, only I was going to be the, bun- <laughs> the brunt of the jokes because I had to go out and make the announcement. We're starting 45 minutes from now. I can tell you, the anticipation and the buzz of the morning. Ooh, it's a wedding. We're going to have a party. We're going to eat food and drink wine, and it's going to be a good time. And then, hey, this thing's going to be delayed, like mega delayed. It is tiring in the darkness. We can't comprehend God's timing in the darkness. Dark times are hard. There is an eerie similarity to the parallels of the first century and the 21st century of what it means to be in the dark when you are waiting for the deliverance of God when you are grappling with oppression or disease or staggering class division racism cries for justice but there's no justice everybody's sort of on edge because there's some source of pain in their life. First century, 21st century, I mean, we grapple with it in different ways, but at the core of the human struggle, it's all the same. And we're still grappling with the same darkness. And it's difficult and it's hard, and it's difficult for the people of God to feel like, is there any deliverance coming? I'm in the dark here. The people of Israel were hearing prophecies like, most, well, there's many, but I mean, one of the familiar ones for you in Jeremiah 29, when they're in captive, captivity to Babylon, God says to them, while they're being dragged off into slavery, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. And then for 400 years, darkness. So you receive that. And you're like, I'm trusting this God who's going to deliver. But you live and die, and you never see it. But you told it to your children. So then your children live and they die, having never saw it. But they told it also to their children. And they're, so your great-great-children are now, they're living and dying, and they haven't seen it. 400 years of darkness. Man, it is so tiring in the darkness. And whether you're here this morning as an agnostic or a Christian, we have some common ground. And the common ground between you and I is that we both know the world is not okay. We can both look out at it, people of faith and non-faith, or curious about faith, and we can agree that even though there is beauty to be had, there is an undeniable brokenness, and we're kind of sick of that paradox. 
the, the world is not okay. We can easily find encouraging bright spots of generosity and love and selfishness, self, selflessness and sacrifice in humanity. But there is that undeniable backdrop of this staggering catalog of wrongs that we've done throughout humanity. We don't really know how to atone for those things. And we argue about it. And we, we fight about the, the way in which we make reparations with the things that we have done globally as a society. We grapple with this darkness. We don't have a lot of answers for it. It's difficult. You know, we find new ways to bring pain into the lives of others. And then it's not just those people out there. It's me and you, the way in which we have hurt one another. We're all guilty of it as a human race. And that really kills the jingle jangle vibe. So it's like, I don't want to think about that. Let's just put the, put the pumpkins and the jack-o'-lanterns away and go right to... Let's just be happy for no reason. Is much more comfortable. But if we do that and we don't grapple with the darkness, well, there is no sense of depth and significance to the light. And praise God, you know, we, spoiler alert, the sermon gets to the light. Grappling with the darkness. We've all had to grapple with it. Whether it's a relationship that's fallen apart or injustice or the fallout of greed that we see in society or the disease or the frustrations of this pandemic that crawls along. and It's tiring in the dark. Notice that it's not just the foolish ones that fall asleep. It's not like if you get your spiritual game together, you're weirdly alert and sober all the time. The wise ones are sleeping too. Everybody gets tired in the dark. And my goal here is not to preach, you know, four sermons in a week that make you sad. But I do pray that pastorally I I preach four sermons that make you sober. So God knows our frailty. And in his mercy, he knows we all get tired in the dark. So he provides fuel for the darkness. So let's move on and consider this. In verses 6 to 7, there's this cry in the middle of the night. And the bridegroom is coming, and, and you, they know he's coming because he is the, has his own source of light. And so you see that in verses uh, 6 and 7. And so the wise women, they've got this fuel reserve so that they can actually awaken to light in the darkness. And so we want to slide into this metaphor of these wise women. And it's, and it's helpful for us, particularly as men, to slide into this metaphor of being the bride of Christ in, in this bridal party because there's this tremendous amount of preparation and care and thought and even, even men who have an uh, affinity for uh, fashion and care and detail and intricacy, there's really, even if you are that kind of a man, there's still really no comparison between the amount of efforts that are exuded by a bridal party. Is there, there's just, no, I've never met, I've never seen one yet where there is an equal amount of sort of effort and care to the detail. And so we've got to slide into this metaphor and consider what does it mean to be the bride of Christ and how much effort and energy and anticipation is there in my heart of my life for the coming of the bridegroom. And so these wise women, they've got the fuel, they, they light their lights. And this oil has always been symbolic of the presence of God, the oil, the presence of the Spirit. And the significance of this is that the wise have the oil and the foolish don't have the oil. And the reason why this is, I think, an important metaphor is because both the wise and the foolish are sleeping. So it's not that the the Christians have got this thing all together. They can both get tired in the dark. But one is given this means of grace, this oil, 
that they can alight in the dark. What is that? Notice the language Jesus uses, wise and foolish. That's the language of the wisdom literature. All throughout the wisdom literature, who is, who is wise and who is a fool? The wise are those who worship the creator. The fool denies the creator, worships the created. So who is, who, where, do we, where are we in this parable? The wise and the foolish. Jesus uses that language because you can't be wise if you're not a worshiper. The, the, those who worship the creator of all things, according to the scriptures, they're the wise ones. And those who don't worship the creator of all things, they're the fools. This is the provoking language that Jesus gives. And there's a reason why it's so important. It's because Jesus is not parsing apart good followers and bad followers. Because either you got the oil or you don't have the oil. He's not saying, I want to parse apart behavior. Those with more preferable, more mature disciplines, and I'm not downplaying those. I'm going to get to the significance of that in a minute. This is about either you've got it or you don't have it. The language that Jesus is using here is not about parsing apart religious activity. It's about parsing apart relationship. Why can I say that so confidently? How can you know that I'm not just coming up with some interpretation of this parable? Look at the language that he uses in verse 12. He says to the fools, I don't know you. He doesn't say, I needed more from you. I changed my mind about you. Your behavior wasn't great, so I've dropped you. There is an assurance in the Christian faith. He says, I, didn't know, I don't know you. But what, this mean, what this means is there is tremendous assurance that once we have received God's pardon, there is no end to his pardon. So therefore, we have a responsibility now to fuel ourselves in the dark. If you're not a worshiper, so how do I know whether I'm a wise or, wise or foolish? Well, the wise one slept too. So church, that means the most sanctified person in here, whoever you are, there's no amount of sort of the discipline of prayer and meditation and worship that is going to keep you from sleeping. But the good news is these are the means of grace of God's fuel to refuel you in the darkness so that you, you can become alive to God's uh, goodness and his provisions for your life. And so he gives, he, uh, he gives us this image of them trimming their lamps and having the oil when we get tired in the dark, we have to avail ourselves of the oil, the gift of God's grace, the gift of prayer, the gift of scripture meditation, the gift of being together in community, going for coffee, having people over, going for walks, being involved in each other's lives so that our faith doesn't just look like the hour on Sunday morning, but that as the bridesmaids, we're able to stir one another on in the goodness of God through the oil that he has provided, the presence of his spirit, the indwelling spirit, and the means of his grace. And so we don't want to look at this with fear and trepidation in our hearts as those who place our faith in Christ, like if I somehow, my, uh, my spiritual disciplines don't hit a particular level, then I'm going to be not welcomed into the wedding feast because i got news for you. You know what the standard is of that is? It's Jesus. And none of us hit it, so praise God for his grace. So because that is true, may we be sober and vigilant and refuel ourselves in the darkness when we feel ourselves drained and sorrowful because life feels dark, situations feel dark, and we're getting tired because we're not seeing the deliverance that we want God to give in our lives, and we find ourselves just like they were at before the first advent, saying, how long, O Lord? 
And so when you see in verse 9, what, they, what the wise say to the foolish is they say, go, go buy some. Again, I don't want to press the details too much. But the point is that it, the oil, this oil, this presence of God, the spirit, it costs something. What does it cost? It costs our throne. It costs being God of our own lives. That's the cost. Go get oil for yourself. What do you do? Earn that? There's a lot of religions in the world that operate that way. On his deathbed, Buddha said to his monks, work hard to attain your own salvation. In the, in the Hindu religion, the goal is to escape this material and be absorbed into the Brahman and get out of the cycle of reincarnation and be absorbed into the all-soul. There's no you, there's no me, there's just us. That, that's, you're trying to get out of here. If you have friends who are Muslim, they'll tell you that the teachings of the Quran are that you pray the prayers diligently and you read the hadiths about the life of Muhammad and then you try and emulate the life of Muhammad and the closer that you emulate the life of the Prophet through the hadiths and pray the prayers of the Quran, then in the, at the end of your life, if the, good, if the good outweighs the bad, you're in. So what is Christian faith then? Is it just another version of those things? It's not. What it costs you is this, your throne to give your life to Jesus, to the bridegroom, to trust in him and his grace and his perfection, to be filled with the oil of his presence, of his spirit. Your trust is in him. So that in the darkness and the sadness and the tragedy, when you're tired and sick and disgusted, and you wish every, the pandemic was over, but it's not, and you wish all your family held your views because it was easier, but they don't, and you wish that the church held all their views because it would be easier, but the church doesn't, and you wish that you didn't have the tensions and the anxieties at work, but it, and you find yourself in the dark, and, in the, and it's just like, how long do I have to? God knows your frailty, and he gives you fuel for the darkness. And the fuel is him and his presence, his word and his spirit, your community of believers to come alongside and take all these things off the throne and put Christ back up there where he belongs, to gather around his goodness and to find light and life in him. There is absolutely no rest apart from the rest that is found in him. And so the church has survived for millennia, not on sentiment, not on optimism, survived on hope, hope of the bridegroom who came that first Christmas day, broke into our darkness with his light, who will come again, break into our darkness with his light, the one who came to set all things in motion, to die for our sin, who will come again and restore all things, Restore this earth. Restore our failing bodies. Not zap us out here on an evacuation plan to fly around in the ethereal part of the universe as stardust. No. But to restore this earth. Restore our bodies. Put him at the center. Worship him as our God. We are his people. We are the bridesmaids that enter into the, festi- that enter into the feast. That enter into the celebration. And thankfully this gospel that is offered to us in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's... For us in the dark, it's not just optimism. It's not just sentimentality. It's not just nostalgia. It's hope that enables us to stare into the darkness of circumstances that seem to not want to change and not make them the Savior. So that on Monday, the peace in your heart and your mind is not wrapped around checking your news feed and saying, oh, finally, some good news. You already have good news. And as we grow weary in this darkness, we turn to the one whose oil and whose presence lights our lamps and gives us strength. Christian hope is the ability to look headlong 
into the horrors of our world and be able to say, Christ is king. And so in verse 10, they come out through the darkness and into the celebration of light. Out of the darkness so thick they can't see their hands in front of their own face. Into the poetic imagery of these bridesmaids entering the massive celebration. They're eating and drinking and laughing and feasting with Jesus. That's where this whole thing is headed. That's the teleology of your life. And in these four weeks of Advent, as we gather together, anticipating and celebrating the, you know, the significance of the incarnation, when God became man... This is, what we, this is what we grapple uh, with the beauty of this wedding feast, this repeated image throughout the scriptures of this light and this love that has pierced the darkness, that will eradicate all darkness. How did he do this? I close with this. We celebrate this, and the reason why the light is so significant, so joyous, not like jumping in at book six, not like jumping in at episode four, not jumping in at season three, but going right to the beginning and going, look at what God has done, is that our God, Jesus Christ, did not shield himself from the darkness. He did not remain transcendent and distant apart from the darkness. He came into our darkness at the cross. Jesus was absorbed in the darkness of the sky, grew black and dark like a bruise, and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was absorbed by that darkness so that you and I would have light in ours. He was forsaken so that we would be forgiven. This is the glory of the gospel. And so it is from this we go into our city to give a defense for our hope in times of darkness. We give a defense for those who are still grappling in the darkness and groping in the darkness. We give a defense for the one who has brought us into his great light, who has united us to him, Jesus Christ, who has forsaken our sin and who has forgiven it and has brought us into his great light. May we go into the city and give a defense for this the one who has flooded our souls, the one who lights our lamps, Christ alone. Let's pray.